following contains explicit language and possibly triggering content. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me on the Black Moment Podcast, where we talk to people about their life-changing stories. If you want to submit your own, you can go to theblackmomentpodcast.com, and I'll give you a little more info about that at the end of this show. So today's guest is Emmanuel, and he's going to talk about his Black Moment and how he overcame that. So tell us uh, a little bit about who you were and what your life looked like in the events leading up to your black moment. Let's see, so when I was well, I was born, my birth mother was 16 when she gave birth. And then um, a year later, she, a little over a year later, she had my brother. Um, and we stayed with her until we were taken from her by CPS. And our birth father was, um, you know, very much in and out of the picture. He was in no way a reliable father figure. Um, he was on and off meth. Um, and actually to come to find out, he still is on and off meth to this day. Um, I guess he stopped for a long period of time, but went back to it. Um, so I think for me, my sort of black moment was, I think that day in court, my brother and I were taken from our birth mother by CPS when the school saw on a regular basis, we were coming to school with, um, you know, a lot of bruises, um, a lot of injuries and stuff like that, that weren't really being explained. And that went beyond, you know, like kids being kids. We got taken out of school one day, they called us the office, the uh, police officer was there, he took us. We got placed into a, essentially an orphanage, they call them group homes now though. Um, so we were placed in one of those for a bit and Fast forward a year later, and the judge gave our mother, who would sit back and watch our stepdad just beat the living shit out of us, um, many times unconscious, or he, he had this one thing he really liked to do where he'd like take the back of our head, slam it into a wall, and then sort of just like grind our foreheads into it. So the judge gave her a choice. He said, you can either have your husband or your sons. You can't have both. And she actually took a moment. She, she like considered it. So she actually thought about it and played it out in her head. And she looked at us and then she looked back at the judge and she said, I'd rather have my husband. So I think for me, that was sort of the start of my black moment, if not my black moment, because I feel like there were a lot of different times in my childhood that were very, um, I guess I would say beginnings of developing who I would become as a person um, and sort of, you know, um, really contributing to my values and my beliefs and sort of, you know, but that, that, that day in court, she legally had given up all rights. We were already wards of the state. So now we were, she had no rights to us whatsoever. Um, so we waited, waited around for a bit until our biological grandmother um, came and rescued us um, and that in itself ended up being just so much worse than the situation before. But I do think that that day in court was probably that black moment. How did that feel that ha having your mom choose your, your dad, you know, it was interesting because it wasn't, um, you know, she was very much the one in the sense on trial, but we were the ones given the sentence. So it's, 
you know, it's an interesting thing to be able to look back on and just one of the things I've really had to come to terms with is, you know, as you grow older, you know, when you're, when you're a child, you know, or when you're growing up, you have these um, definitive bad guys and good guys and people who are supposed to be your good guys. So like your mother or your father and people like that, who are supposed to be your safe places, you realize are bad guys, at least to you in that time not to excuse her in any way, shape or form, but as you grow older, you do, and you learn more about, you know, your tormentors histories and you find out they have torment. So she was actually um, raped and sexually abused by her birth father when she was a child. And this is somebody who she still, even, even to this day has a relationship with. They've, you know, sort of moved on and accepted that that's what their living was like, but her not breaking free of that or trying to be to it really establish a healthier environment for herself and allowing this pervert to just continue to be uh really have a prominent role in her life obviously really twisted her and she chose to instead of break cycles whether she continued the same cycle of abuse or not she herself wasn't the abuser but she permitted the abuse so there's a, you know, there is a, it's obviously not a gray area. It is complete. She was in the wrong. However, it's something that's hard to really accept that you have to realize is that everybody is human and our tormentors do have tormentors of their own that sort of lead into them becoming these figures and these, these people and to do the things that they do. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with because they do always ask, you know, especially as a kid, you ask yourself, why? Like, why me? Like, you know, and it really did, it really did, um, you know, set into stone this huge lack of self-worth. You know, if, if, if even my own mom can look at me and say, I'd rather have my husband, it's like, damn, am I really that expendable? And then, so, you know, whereas I sort of took it, I responded in a way of like, okay, fuck that. I don't need anybody ever. And in some situations, I, you know, even today I can acknowledge, I have a, um, I I always kind of like, it's like an internal joke with myself. I'm like, maybe I'm just like a really high functioning sociopath that like, I can just turn off some emotions for people. I'm like, all right, we're done. Like, that's it. Nope. And it's simple as that. I don't have to have a yelling bout or anything like that, but it, it did, you know, create something that I would say isn't particularly healthy. Whereas in my brother, he very much continued to seek that love and affection in anyone that he possibly could, um, which is why later on in life, he actually went back to our birth mother. And then he was too young at that stage when we were being abused to really fully remember it. So for him, he didn't fully remember it. And then so she started feeding into his head when he was older that it never happened. And then so that created a divide within him and I, because I'm like, how do you, for me, one, like, how do you not remember that? Okay. And, and which is, I understand he could have repressed it. He's also younger. His memory is not full, fully, um, you know, the, his, the capabilities his mind has to fully, um, you know, retain memories isn't great to start off with. And she was also, she was also using drugs when she was pregnant with him. So he's already got like, you know, everybody's like six cylinders, he's five. And that's not to say that he's not intelligent in some ways. He's just not, not everything clicks the way it, I think it should in a normal functioning human being. But you, you, you find the contrast in 
how people will develop after that. And so I think that was probably my brother's black moment too. And sadly, it just, it continued to be a weight on him that, you know, it's like he always had these things tied to his feet that just, he had the key in the, for the lock. He just never used it. So I think that was, yeah. Did you both live with your grandma? We did. However, um, so our grandmother, she found out that if you adopted kids who either have or develop disabilities, um, you can get more money from the state for it because, you know, and that's what she wanted. Um, so my brother was very much um, acting out. And so she found a way to keep still have legal custody, therefore still have be getting the money from the state for him, but she put him in and out of boys' homes. And then while he was being put in and out of boys' homes, I was left alone with her. We were both, um, you know, in, in a, we didn't have medical conditions. We, we had PTSD and stuff like that, but in a sense of medical conditions other than that, you know, him with maybe a learning disability and things like that, um, there was nothing there, but she in her pursuit of getting more financial reward, she created disabilities. She started to over-medicate us. And, you know, these are, she started to, do, you know, convince doctors that we had these things going on at home and they just weren't seeing them in the office when we brought to them. So they, of course, thinking this woman has the best interest at heart for us, believed her. And they started prescribing very heavy narcotics for me. And then for him, my brother, they started prescribing other things. And with the amount of medications we were given, he developed, he did legitimately develop more mental disabilities and I developed physical disabilities. So she got what she wanted and they became things that we were, um, we, you know, we both have to deal with to this day. You know, I think that that dependence on that on those drugs definitely sparked my brother's, um, you know, desire to search other substances. And now he is an off and on drug addict. So I think she definitely, you know, really set the stage for him to, to do that. And for me, she gifted me a very uh, lovely physical condition that for years, doctors really just could not figure out what it was. It was kind of like a seizure, but it wasn't. So my body muscles would just convulse over and over again, there'd be so much pressure building up in my body that the my blood vessels would burst. So underneath my skin, it looked like just hickeys because underneath they're just they're just exploding, and the blood vessels in my nose would always burst. So I just have, you know, literally I'd wake up in a pool of my own blood, and it was you know agonizing. I actually I only attended high school. I found out for about two years physically the rest of it was all homeschool because of these conditions and so but during all this time as well while my brother was in and out of boys homes when he wasn't there she was you know molesting me how old were you guys at this time well I, I, this was going on between the ages of like for me 11 to about 15 um when the molestation itself was going on the over medication didn't really I didn't really kick that and realize what she was doing until I was about 16, 17. And I guess I just sort of clicked one day, you know, like maybe all these things aren't working. Maybe all, all these meds, why am I taking them if they're not helping? 
So I decided to, you know, I got super, super into exercising. I would wake up. I, I always took a bus to school and stuff like that. I would wake up at like 5.30 in the morning, start going on an eight mile run at six o'clock, come back, you know, get ready for school, take the bus and head out. And then afterwards, you know, I, you know, I dedicated myself to my schoolwork because I had so much to make up for, for missing the, those years. And um, I ended up with, I would do like, I think it, um, so at, when I was 19, I got stabbed in the stomach. So the combined trauma from that being stabbed and then also the physical trauma from the condition, my brain started to shut down and I got retrograde amnesia. So a lot of this stuff is things I've had been forced to remember, or I've had to do research from other people in my life at the time. And from, I wrote myself journals because when I first lost my memory, I lost about five months. And then the doctor said, you could lose more. So I got super, super paranoid. And I started writing as much as I could about my life. And I woke up the day after my 19th birthday and I did not know who I was. So that's why when I refer to it, I'm like, you know, to my understanding or I learned or I found out that's what I'm referring to. I found out I, I ended up doing like 3000 crunches a night and like, you know, a thousand pushups and like 700. So I'm, I mean, like I went all out. I was doing an unhealthy amount of exercise, which really at that point, it, it just becomes, you know, in the long run, you're probably just hurting your body than benefiting it. But I got... I completely got rid of every single medication I was on. And then my grandmother decided that she didn't like that. I was starting to be more coherent and more. Um, I was really recognizing the level of toxicity that she possessed and the influence that she had over not only my life, but my brother's life and the horrible things she was doing. So she tried to convince my doctor to have a, I guess it was like, a, you know, she labeled it as like a, just a routine physical or something. But when I got in there, he, he apparently told me, uh, yeah, I don't know why she told you that. Cause it's not, she wanted me to tell you that you need to go back on your meds. And he's like, but I'm looking at you. And we talked for a little bit. He's like, you don't need them. So after that, uh, she kicked me out because I wouldn't go back on the meds. So I bounced around to my uncles for a bit. And then to a, um, a girl I was dating with uh, at the time in high school, her mother um, sort of took me in as her own. And so I, I stayed with them for, for a, a good while. Where was your brother? When did he leave? So after high school, um, you know, I got my grades up and I ended up doing so well that I ended up, ended up getting accepted to the University of Maui for mechanical engineering. And then uh, you know, it was all paid for everything. Cause I had no fucking money. So I, you know, my academics were enough that it was, you know, they were like, well, the financial aid you'll have, will cover it and the school will cover the rest or something like that. So I had enough money in my, you know, bank account to pay for a plane ticket out there. I had a friend who'd moved out there. Um, she said, she'd, you know, let me stay there for a while until I got on my feet and start going to school or whatever. And we'd figure that out. And, uh, so I went, and then three, two days into it, I was there in Maui for a grand total of five days. Hadn't even started school yet. It was like two weeks before school started. Um, two days in, my brother calls me and says, hey, I found a way I can get out, but I need you to get me out. So it was that, okay, 
do I stay and sort of reward myself for all the hard work that I've had to do for scramming four years of schooling into two years and really try to have the best opportunity to change my life or do I go back and don't have enough money for a plane ticket back and get him out. So with where I'm at now in life, you know, I'm happy in the long run that that's the choice I made. But I think at that time it was very naive. I went back and he said, you know, he had been talking to somebody. They, they were going to let him stay with them for however long he needed. I'm like, that's awesome. So I drove him to the, pl- to the place and, you know, I went and checked him out. And then they were like, yeah, we're just going away for the weekend. We never went back and uh, checked him out. And we drive up to the house. They walk out and it's my fucking mom. And I remember just looking at him. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? This was, this was your solution. The person who put us into this is your saving grace. And that was, that was the big rift for my brother and I in our relationship. It was, you know, I had given up this future and you chose to, with this gift that I was, you know, giving him by me giving this up, that's what he chose to do with that. And so that really, you know, um, for all the, the hurts and pains that we had, you know, we had been through, he chose to go back with her. And I'm like, did you not, was that not a hard enough lesson to learn when we were so young that you decided, let me give her another shot. I think at the end of the day, people can generally be redeemed. I think there are some people who do go too far and have done too horrendous of things that you should still carry the label of the things that you've done. Like if somebody goes around being a mass rapist and they're after afterwards are like, I'm sorry, now I run a soup kitchen and do all these things or whatever. It's like, that's cool that you're putting good into the world. You're still going to fucking carry the title of being a rapist. That is your burden to bear because the memories and the trauma that you have others bearing because of your choices, as long as they hurt, that's how long you're going to hurt. That's how long you're going to, you know, have that mantle. So for me, I was really pissed off. I'm like, you know, he made the argument of, well, you know, she treats our other siblings really good because when we were with our stepdad and our birth mom, you know, when they were together, they ended up having two kids of, of their own. So we were very much the black sheep. And I, you know, he, to our understanding, never beat them. So, you know, to her credit in whatever manner I would give it to her, she was a good mom to them, apparently. But I'm like, yes, but you're using an example of other people that she was a good mom to. She was already a bad mom to you. It's not like she has no status and she lost us when we were babies because we were taken or you know, she was an addict and just couldn't, you know, it was, it was better off for us that we weren't with her. She literally chose while we were, we were like nine, 10. I'm like, she chose. That's not, that was in her control. And then, you know, funnily enough, like two years after she made that choice, she ended up getting a divorce with him. So it's like, even then, she can't look back and say, you know, well, like it was worth it. Or, you know, I did what I had to do. And my husband and I are now stronger for it. Blah, blah. It's like, you guys got fucking divorced for my brother and I, that was definitely, um, that's definitely the divide that we had. And I did hold, 
I think probably an unfair amount of anger towards him for that. And cause in my mind, I'm like, I raised you. Like I gave up my childhood to be, you know, protector. Cause you know, even when I was young, I have this memory. My stepdad was just beating the shit out of my brother. He did something. I don't, I don't really quite remember what, and I couldn't, for life me, I, 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 I didn't know what to do. So I'm like, I just have to stop it no matter what. So I ran to our bathroom and I actually looked it up afterwards. Cause I'm like, I don't, you know, it, it was an interesting detail, but there was this like little, almost transparent green bar of soap in the shower. And it had this little bust of a Skywalker in his pod of Anakin Skywalker in his pod racer helmet from episode one. And I looked it up online. I'm like, damn, yeah, that's it. And I grabbed it and I just chucked it at the bathroom mirror. And I knew that would be loud enough and it would be enough damage that all that anger and rage would get transferred onto me. And so I was pissed. I'm like, I did everything I could for you. I put my life at stake for you. You know, I put my own well-being uh, I put your own well-being constantly above my own. And in the end, this is this is what you do with how hard I've fought. You know, even me coming back from being able to go to a university and it being paid for, like, this is what you're doing with that. That was, um, you know, it's interesting to see the contrast of how people can handle similar situations. And and in some in some regard, like, you know, his was, ours was different on certain levels, you know, he wasn't sexually abused like I was, but I also wasn't put in and out of boys homes. Um, you know, and there's definitely different kinds of abuse that goes on in there. Um, you know, you put a bunch of hormonal boys together who have no real bond together and they're just all the fucking troublemakers. It's shit's gonna happen. Um, they're going to hurt each other. And so we've definitely had varying degrees of abuse after that, that we didn't share, but it it really made me realize that there's a there's an interesting bond that can be formed. And I think this is kind of why like people who have troubled pasts can kind of like pinpoint other people and you're like, you're my new fucking best friend. Because like you understand. Like you really there's a there's a bittersweet power, I would say, in the type of camaraderie that you can have with someone who has similar traumas to your own. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because it really does happen. Cause there's I met this uh I used to go to Barnes and Noble a lot and uh, there was this one girl who worked there and we, you know, I'd always ask her, like, Hey, where's this book? She'd always help me out. And over time we like started talking about what books we were into and things like that. She asked me out for coffee one day, we went and had coffee. And then we started talking about each other's lives and we were like, Oh shit. Um, I think we just became best friends. <laughs> like, um, And so it was, um, it's always interesting, but it's, it's, it's kind of scary to see the contrast that people can take. Um, you know, I do, I did try to reconnect with my birth mother after, you know, the memory loss and all that. Um, and she said something that was interesting. She said, you know, she had these tattoos on her and funnily enough, um, two of them were actually, um, representations for my brother and I, um, which is kind of like that in itself too is like, was hard for me to accept. Cause it's like, you fucking threw us away and yet we're important enough to mark your body. But she had a sun and a moon and she said, you guys were always just so different. You know, you were 
the quiet thinker and your brother was just the loud, crazy one, you know, do, does whatever comes to mind. And, and then I realized, you know, it, it, when she said that it really hit me that my brother and I really are just two sides of the same coin. You know, our origins up to that black moment are very much the same. Now, there are differences after that that lead to other, I would say, you know, you know, in storytelling, you know, novels and writing, it's um, I, I do know a bit about this because I'm an aspiring graphic novel writer. So I have to study structures of story and everything like that. So it's very much a part of the hero's journey to have that inciting incident, you know, that that defining moment that leads the protagonist onto the road that they essentially become whether they're it be their own hero or the hero of someone else in some shape or form it's all it's their road to becoming a hero and i think you know that day in court was definitely our road to figure out who we wanted to become you know my brother just i think didn't want to hurt people anymore so he became this over loving person and over accepting person despite what people would believe and i became this very angry person who this angry child who just did not want to have to deal with the world shit anymore and i do genuinely believe that the only reason why i sort of like didn't fight back sooner when it came to my birth grandmother is we were very much fed this you know notion that she rescued us we owed her so you know there was that but also you know i was being drugged up a lot so that definitely impaired my ability to think but it's funny that once all of that was out of my system all those drugs i think that that anger in that was buried away really came back and i decided to do things that were productive with it you know my now fiance she used to be in a very um you know she used to have a domestic violent relationship with son's birth father and the most horrible things in that guy's life were his mom left when he's a kid now even then he's had a stepmom who's been there since he was a fucking child but he uses this notion of like well i didn't have a mom so i like to do all this stuff like it to be the root of why he you know his excuses of like you know why he beat her or why he beat his son or all these things like i could use every excuse under the sun but that's not a viable reason as to why it would be okay for me to become an abuser and that does happen a lot sadly because you know people who are abused more often than not do become abusers it it really does take a lot of fucking hard work. It really does. It takes a lot of hard work to break that cycle, to shed that skin and to, you know, it, it, it really makes me think of that, that whole Nietzsche, you know, looking into the abyss and it looks back. And it's very true um, because I think people who have been abused, you kind of have to accept you're more susceptible to becoming an abuser. You fall into the same patterns. It's what happened to you. So it's kind of you, you are relaying that you're putting it back into the world. So you really have to go against what you are taught, you know, because there is, I think everybody's, you know, a combination between nature and nurture. I don't think it's any one over the other. You know, I think some people are more born, more naturally angry, or maybe some people are born more naturally nice, but definitely the conditions that you're born into and raised, they definitely help shape that. And they help you grow in areas that, you know, it's like a plant, you know, I can do what I want with the plant, but then I get to, you know, take that wire and shape it. I think you're the conditions that you, you live in and, you know, that nurture definitely helps shape that. So to go against your own nurture is hard.
you know, I, I did recognize that my brother really and I are just two sides of the same coin. We just took two different roads. We took our traumas and decided to do different things with it, you know, right now. And, you know, I'm trying to do what I can to take really any wisdom or positivity from my life and sort of share it with others. And because like I said before, there really is a bittersweet. There is, there's a very much a bittersweetness to finding people who have trauma like you and being able to connect over it because, you know, you don't want anybody to have to have gone through similar things like you, but when you find it, it's nice because you're able to connect. Somebody's able to understand on that level, you know? And, uh, for me personally, that's kind of why I never, that one-on-one therapy never worked for me. Cause I know I'm like, they're, they're talking, you know, they're very knowledgeable. You know, they went to school, they're very educated. They're very intelligent people. However, I know that it's just, this is just knowledge to them. It's not experience. It's not wisdom, you know, and I, I genuinely need to speak to somebody who understands on that type of level, not somebody I'm talking to, but somebody I'm talking with. Um, so yeah. And so what did your, when you got amnesia, how long did that last? What did your road to recovery look like? So I've only got about, you know, 35, little bit more memories, um, from that time, it it doesn't accumulate to more than like, you know, 30 minutes, you know, that, that definitely brought us obviously brings on its own struggles. Cause I had to essentially in some ways, sort of with the memories and things like that, I had to get re-traumatized. Um, and you know, cause I knew about these things, but I didn't, I didn't remember it. You know, I knew what my mom said. I didn't remember it. So I remember I was, uh, I had, you know, my girlfriend at the time she was driving and I had this, you know, I get this, like this weird fog in my head and it's, and it's a very particular type of fog. It's nothing, nothing, nothing else I've ever felt compares to it. Right. So I know exactly what it is. So if I'm doing something, I can be like, Oh shit, I need to like step aside. And my vision, like, you know, if you have like an ocular, you know, ocular view of something, you know, the, the dark edges of the picture are kind of, you know, there's the dark corners of the picture to make it circular and make it ocular. Um, it starts to get like that. And so everything like from the edges of my, you know, my peripheral vision starts to fade until it goes all the way. And then it like, I get like zapped back to that moment. And it's really odd because it's like the smell, you know, the, the, the AC blowing into the room on my cheek, you know, I, I can, it, it's more than just like remembering. It's like, I'm like reliving it. And I am not aware of everything else that's around me. And it's very split, you know, it happens for just a few seconds, but afterwards it's that wave of emotion. Like I just bawled my eyes out when I remembered that court day, because I just, I remembered, but I relived it. And so and, and I think that's kind of a, you know, a fear as well as I don't know what else is tucked away. You know, the, the sexual abuse actually for my grandmother, that was something I opted out from writing in my journals. I like, I made a conscious decision to say, you know what, if I can live without this, I'd rather live without it. So to then be forced to relive it and remember it you know, nature and my mind going against the gift I was trying to give myself was very difficult. It was very hard. I didn't really, I didn't understand. I wasn't sure if it was real. Um, and I, and I think that was, that was probably one of the biggest things too, you know, is 
trying to figure out if these things that I remember, I'm like, are these, are these real? And so many of the memories I've gotten lined up with other things that I've written about. And, you know, I've gotten a handful of the sexual abuse. I'm like, no, that, that happened sadly. That that's, that's something I really, really struggle with today still is the amnesia. You know, I, I have no problem making new memories. So anything after, you know, August 26, 2012, I remember very well. Um, it's stuff before that day that, well, the 26th and after, um, it's, it's hard because it's like, you know, you start to get in your own head early on. I I refer to that moment as the moment I woke up because that's the first thing I remember doing. The very first thing I remember doing was waking up. So I, I refer it to as waking up and it's just something that sort of stuck whenever I talk about that moment, which is interesting because in, you know, in my new life, that's sort of my black moment. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, I get another one under my belt, I guess. So I, so I, you know, for a long time, like my name back then was Manuel. And when I woke up, I just didn't, it didn't feel right. So I eventually did change it to Emmanuel. And it's something so, you know, simple enough that people who knew me before can make a simple adjustment to, you know, the way, you know, a name, but it, it, it definitely felt more like me, but it took, a, it took years before I was like, that was my life. It, it, to me, it was like, you know, I, I had this image of Manuel and it was very, you know, like that strength that he had, that perseverance and that will isn't mine. You know, that's his and anything that is mine. It's a gift that I've been given. that I don't deserve because he's the one who went through it. And it wasn't, it, it wasn't until probably like a year and a half ago that it like, I, I had this flicker in my mind and it, it, it was that memory stuff coming back and it was something so simple and and I don't know why my brain decided that this was important enough you know to even survive the amnesia that it was something I remember but I was writing a letter I think it was like for school or something but it started out with I'm manual and I was probably a letter to somebody or something but I I like pieced it together and I was like holy shit like my new name spells out I'm manual. Oh. And it was this huge, huge revelation for me that for whatever reason held, held so much weight in it that I like acknowledge. I'm like, no, that was me. Like, that's my life. That's my story. That's, you know, the strength that I do have that survived the amnesia and stuff like that. That's mine. You know, just like the traumas and the pains are just like those tears, that anger, that's all mine. And it wasn't really until something so simple as that, that like really, because before that memory, I, you know, I, I dealt with this a lot. I still struggle with it now from time to time, but you feel like an empty husk, You're, you know, you feel like a human husk. Like I don't, I'm always envious of, of people when they have like, a, can have a normal conversation of like one icebreaker, one of my classes was, you know, what did you, what was your dream job when you were little? I had to pass because I didn't know, you know, I don't know what my favorite TV show was as a kid. I don't know my favorite superhero, any of that. And so I still struggle with it a lot. And it's something I do have to, you know, battle my own mind against. And it's like, was I so worthless, even to life, the universe, whatever God may be out there, that I'm not even worthy enough to have my own memories. You know, I'm so worthless that 
I am just a living, breathing husk that there's nothing inside. It's just what you see with what you get. Um, and that's something I still struggle with. So, you know, I think I've adjusted and to the best of my ability, I know that there's a lot of things with the amnesia that I could definitely use help on, but that's something that I've met two people with retrograde amnesia, but it's nothing more than like six months. For me, it's 19 years, you know, and I get bits and pieces back from time to time. You know, that was in 2012. So it's now 2020. It's been eight years and I have like 30 to 40 memories. That's hard to swallow. And that means I'll have to be, it'll be the day after my 36th birthday. No, my 38th birthday that I will officially have more than half of my life's memories. And that fucking sucks. It really sucks. You always feel like you're at a disadvantage. And I'm, I do hope, it, again, it'll be a bittersweet thing because I never want anybody to have to experience this. But it'll be interesting. And I do hope to find somebody who's, who's had it to the degree that I do that I can speak with so I can actually, you know, find somebody who understands. Because there is something very scary in walking past a mirror and not recognizing, legitimately not knowing what you look like. Or not recognizing the sound of your own voice. Like, you know, people can use the phrase, you know, I, I looked into the mirror and I didn't know who I was looking at. I legitimately looked, very literally looked into a mirror and did not know who I was looking at. I would like to know the story behind all my scars. My ex and I counted once and I have like over 50. And I'm like, I, I want to know what this one on my knees from, you know, I want to know what this one on my chest is from what this, you know, whether I want to be able to remember that or not, maybe that's a different story. And I do get asked that a lot is, you know, are you happy that you forgot? I, I can't really give a definitive answer for that because to some degree, I'm happy about it. I'm happy that I don't remember those things. And for a short while, I didn't have to remember, you know, the sexual abuse. You know, your memories are definitely your motivations and your drive to becoming who you wanted to be. And I didn't know who I wanted to be anymore. And it's interesting, too, because even with memory loss, you find that there are things that are core values to yourself that even survive a loss of memory, which was super interesting. You know, people I talked to, they were like, no, these parts of you are still the same. So it's interesting that those things in your life have affected you so much that I can testify that even if you lose your memories, the things that have happened to you and helped create who you are as a person and the choices you've made to become who you want to be or who you are become fundamental memory or not. But it sucked to have to realize that I don't have answers to, you know, why am I like this? Why do I handle situations like this? I don't remember. So to some degree, I'm happy I forgot, but to others, I hate it. So what, what hope do you hold on to now? What, what motivates you? Uh, well, my dream is to just, you know, really simple, uh, to be a husband and a dad. With this new relationship, I, I definitely, I have that. It's been about a year and a half. I've been with my fiance. Before that, I was in a relationship on and off for about six years. We got married 
only lasted marriage for about six months. It was a very emotionally abusive relationship. And I just wasn't, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't have enough self-worth to leave it, to know, to know that that the way I was being treated was wrong. Like I actually, the weekend I went to propose to my ex-wife, my dad sat down with me to talk about it. You know, I got taken in by this couple after my amnesia. So he's my dad and he sat down with me and he, he asked me about it. And I, you know, I told him it was sad that I couldn't recognize it. Even then I told him like, yeah, I'm going to, because I know that, you know, it's, it's okay to marry her, marry her because I know I don't deserve any better. He said as much as he could, but after the divorce and things like that, and we talked more, he's like, that broke my heart to like legitimately see you make such a huge life decision. And a main motivating factor why you were okay with it was because you didn't believe you deserved any better. So it, one day it just, I was just done. I'm like, I can't do this shit anymore. And I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry that I didn't come to this realization before we actually got married, but you treat me fucking horribly and I'm done. Like I've given you chance after chance. You've done horrible things. I'm just, I'm gone. And so I did. And then in that time, we actually found out we had gotten pregnant, but when we found out we got pregnant, when she found out she had a miscarriage. So she then lied to me about, you know, miscarriages happen. One in four pregnancies end up in miscarriages, which is horrible. I think people do need to realize and recognize that, this taboo subject needs to be talked about more because it affects more people than we realize. Um, but she lied to me and told me that the doctor told her that the miscarriage happened because of the stress I was putting on her because I want was leaving. And so I then was carrying around this horrible notion that I had inadvertently killed my own child, you know, something that I had, been striving for for so long as I wanted to be a father. But really, I think it was her last attempt to really just dig into me and try to cut me down. You know, she's like, what, what, what does he want most? What can I fucking take away right at the second of giving it to him? I can take it away. It's that because come to find out, you know, after a, uh, that was the darkest time in my life. You know, even, even the amnesia doesn't compare to where I was then. So I, I had a failed suicide attempt, which even, even with that, you're kind of like, damn, I couldn't even do that. Right. But, you know, I did, I talked to doctors about it more because, you know, I, I, I was forced to, you know, speak to a lot of medical mental health professionals and things like that. And I told them about that. They're like, you realize that's not a thing, right? Like emotions don't actually like, there are women who give birth in the middle of war, like emotional pain and sadness don't cause miscarriages. Like they can, they can, be harmful to the baby's health sure but not to the degree that like the baby dies and like come to find out you know myo clinic who's like one of the leading researchers in the states um of of you know medicine and everything under the sun with that you know they've made official statements saying there is no evidence whatsoever that says miscarriages are caused by these things and i'm like damn so now that you know to answer to give a long answer to your question, um, what I strive for now is that, you know, I do have a healthy relationship with someone and, you know, she already had a son. So I've, I've been lucky enough to, you know, jump into being a dad for a five-year-old, which has been awesome. So what, but what gives me hope is that while I was given this, you know, 
these vile creatures for family, I get to create my own. And we do, we do have the ability to create our own families, you know, it doesn't matter who we come from. You can come from the most vile and horrible people in the world, but you can choose to leave, you know, and at some point in your life, you do become responsible for who you, who you allow in and out of your life. Um, you know, children don't have that luxury, but as an adult, I do. So you have to be very firm with those choices. You have to make sure you're making the right choice of people who you let into your life and things like that. So that's what gives me hope is that I get to make my own family. You know, I get to make my relationships as healthy as they possibly can. You get to break the cycle. Yeah, I, I, and I do, I get to break the cycle. And I think for me, it's kind of, you know, I think a charge for people who've been abused, it's an unfair charge, I would say, because you have to do more than the standard person who has not been abused. But it becomes your charge that you sort of, you now need to put into the world, not only the good you can offer, but the good you also were not given. Because you need to, you know what it's like, and you need to fill that gap, you need to fill that hole, you need to replace that hate in the world with love, you know, kindness, and generosity. And, and now I'm being given the opportunity to be the stepdad that I would have wanted. And where I'm at, how I handle situations, you know, I you obviously have to, if he's a five-year-old boy, I could discipline him, you know, plenty of times. But I've never yelled at him. I've never laid a hand on him. You know, there's custody issues with even the state right now before him because his dad smacked him. And it's like, you know, the worst, again, the worst he's been through is his mom left. It's like, that's not like, I, I get, yeah, that hurts. That'll hurt you. Trust me. I understand that. But that's not... Even then, that is bare minimum reasons to go on to smack children, like, or to abuse anybody. Like, that's not, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not a lot that happened to them. So that's, that's my hope, is that I've, I do get to make my own family. And one of the phrases that I absolutely fucking hate is the whole bullshit of, you know, um, blood is thicker than water. Because it, it, it just gives people an excuse to, you know, it, it, it sets up this horrible ideology that your blood relatives have to stay in your life or can be permitted to do anything to you because of your blood relatives, which the phrase pisses me off so much is because it's a muddied down version of a phrase that is actually saying the exact opposite. The original saying is the blood of, oh, sorry, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Mm. So it's your bond that you've made with this person, your blood of a covenant, your oath to them is stronger than your biological relations. I'm like, how is it this phrase has literally gotten so fucking twisted. It is now a supporting phrase to abusers to say the exact opposite of what its original intent was. So whenever I hear that, am I actually like, you know, I got, a while back, I reconnected with my birth uncle and he ended up, he's just fucking narcissistic. But, you know, I, I talked with his son and his son talked about, you know, he's like, yeah, I want to get like a matching tattoo with my dad one day. I'm like, what do you want to get? He's like, I want to get blood is thicker than water. And again, that's, that's a phrase his dad uses because his dad's emotionally abusive. And so that's his kind of, you know, hook in. And I, and I laughed and I, and I, and I, ha I felt like a dick, but I laughed. And he's like, what? I'm like, Th that's not the phrase dude <laughs> like and I told him real and he's like and his dad kind of just sat there and said nothing but I'm like 
you're literally want to get a phrase tattooed on you that actually its original meaning means the exact opposite because just because somebody's your parent or any blood relative doesn't give them fucking permission to be in your life if they're assholes. It's a better saying. We need to bring that saying back. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we really, really do because I've seen horrible people continue to be permitted into someone's life because of this ideology that blood is thicker than water. It holds no grounds for why someone should be given the luxury of having someone in their life because that is a reward and people, I think people do, you know, especially if you've been abused, you have a low sense of self-worth and you think, well, I'm nothing special. So why, why should I think, oh, I'm a blessing if you have me in your life like that. And even then that's just kind of cocky, but you do have to realize like you have good to offer and you can, you can be acquaintances and, you know, friends to as many people as you want, but really you only have so much time to spend genuine quality time with people. And I would rather spend it with people who genuinely make me feel good about myself than with people who don't, because then I'm just wasting my fucking time. And essentially then I'm wasting my life and I have too much of my life that I need to make up for not remembering that I'm not going to waste my fucking time. I need to make good memories and not try to, you know, continue this cycle of having bad memories that life has so graciously gifted me. You know, we do all have these inciting incidences in our lives, these black moments um, that do sort of define us. And whether we like them or not, they do define us and they do start our life. They start our hero's journey. Um, you know, whether it becomes a comedy or a tragedy, that's kind of up to us to a certain degree. Um, Cause there are things out of our control. You know, you get fucking stabbed to death or something or shot or T-boned in the car. It's not really your choice. Um, but more often that than not the, you know, as an adult, when you start fully making decisions on your life, there are, are more responsibilities than people would like to acknowledge that are theirs. You know, it's been nice. And you, you were definitely doing something that I, I definitely want to do as well, which is let people know they're not alone. There has been plenty of pain in the world to go around to make sure that no one genuinely feels alone in what they're suffering and going through. I think this is a great time to stop. <laughs> that was a, cool. Thank you so much for sharing everything. Oh, yeah, of course. And uh, good luck to you and your fiance and her kid. Thank you. thank you. Yeah. If you want to follow Emmanuel, you can on TikTok. His handle is at the amnesiac. Check the episode's description for the spelling. If you have a story you want to share, go to our website, theblackmomentpodcast.com. You can record a little soundbite on your phone, send us that MP3, email it in, send it to our Dropbox. We can schedule a Zoom interview like we just did with this episode. Just tell us who you were before, what your black moment was, and how your life was like afterwards. Were you in an accident? Did you have a severe illness? Survive a natural disaster? Find your faith? Lose your faith? Other than that, follow us, rate us, review us. Just know that no matter how big or how small, your story matters. Mm-hmm.